Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, songwriter, producer, Kipper Jones. Starting out as a Motown session singer in Los Angeles while still just a teen, he would go on to lead the vastly underappreciated 1980s funk band Tees and collaborate with some of black music's biggest stars. Those successes include spearheading Vanessa Williams' vocal stardom with hits like The Right Stuff and The Comfort Zone, Brandy's I Want to Be Down and Baby, Kenny Lattimore's Never Too Busy, and films like Robert Townsend's The Five Heartbeats. Other artists he has been associated with include Anita Baker, Teddy Pendergrass, Tina Marie, Lauren Hill, Sly Stone, Paul Jackson, Shante Moore, Brian McKnight, Shaka Khan, Tevin Campbell, Boys to Men, Wayman Tisdale, and Patty Austin. In all, he has been part of seven top 20 and three number one R&B hits. His solo work includes last year's remake of Rose Royce's classic, Wishing on a Star, and he also hosts the Know Better with Kipper Jones podcast. Kipper, thank you for joining me. How are you? Well, I'm obviously too busy to be sitting talking to you right now. Um, no, <laughs> if I'm doing all that. <laughs> no, man, I'm wonderful. Thank you so very much, God. Appreciate you for having me. Thank you for being on. You know, it's a long time coming. Uh, we were talking before. I've been a Tease fan for a long time. And uh, so it's, it's great to have you on and to share that story with uh, all the fans out there. Yeah, man, you're, you're not old enough, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, yeah, that was generations ago, literally. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, like I was mentioning in, in our uh, pre-interview pre piece, we, uh, those were just great days. Uh, there, was, there was great music. There was great energy, the way the industry worked. Uh, then, you know, um, 
just knowing all the record pool guys and uh, you know, just just that whole action, man. It was just a very very different time. Um, and I, for you to even mention it and bring it up, it's just like I just want to hug you because like you you were there. <laughs> so we're gonna go into some detail with it. Uh, so yeah, that's fantastic mm-hmm. to to get that story because, like I had said, I think the band um, should have certainly gotten more uh, success and recognition at the time, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, where are you coming to us from today? Uh, I am in Atlanta. Well, I'm actually in East Point. If anybody knows the Atlanta area, I'm in East Point, Georgia. I live um, mere blocks away from uh, Mr. Tyler Perry's uh, expansive uh, film studio here. Um, ex- expansive and getting expansiver. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He bought the... Uh, uh, Fort McPherson, which was uh, a Confederate uh, military base uh, here in, uh, in in suburban Atlanta, um, and it was abandoned and sitting there, and it's like a hundred and something acres or more or something. I don't know, some crazy figure or whatever. Um, but it's uh, but he he bought it. It's, it, the, the irony is not lost on me that Tyler Perry bought this old Confederate uh, um, base, uh, military base, and turned it into a thriving, ridiculously popular uh, film studio. When I say popular, uh, Marvel, from what I understand, just rented out four of the studios on the lot for the next two and a half years or something. Um, which is just crazy, but I think it's just wonderful. <laughs> and I love being in Atlanta. It's just that kind of energy and uh, entertainment, music, film, TV, everything is just really thriving here. And I just I, I love it here in Atlanta. So I know that uh, as far as your music upbringing, you kind of uh, got started with, uh, I had heard French horn, and you played some saxophone. and Yeah, and I'm also a sax player. Wow, really? Alto. Yeah, me too. Me too. Okay. I was E-flat horns. I played alto and baritone. Um, alto more, of course, because I was probably about this tall and I had a huge afro. So I just the saxophone was bigger than I was if I played baritone. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, man, I um, started out as a, as a saxophone player. I mean, the French horn thing is just a fluke and a freak of nature. My, I'm, even though I, yeah, I played first chair French horn in the Flint Elementary Symphony um, in fifth and sixth grade. Um, I, my parents divorced. Uh, we moved from California to Michigan, and I was in Flint those three years, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And my mom, she always tried to nurture this creative piece, I think, that she saw in me. Uh, and so uh, she had me audition for the uh, for the orchestra, and I made it. <laughs> and ended up playing, like I said, first chair French horn. I moved back to LA uh, after my mom got her degree. We moved back to, to California. And um, I was staying with my grandparents in South Central. Went to the music uh, teacher and I asked him where the French horns were. He said, uh, We don't do that here. And so he hands me this case and he says, Here, take this home, this, this home and learn to play it. And I was like, we don't have money for this. And he said, no, not asking you that. Take it home. Learn how to play it. It was a brand new Selmer alto saxophone. It's still in the bag in the case. Um, And I started playing. I was so grateful. (laughs) My grandmother was like angry. She's like, don't bring stuff in here. We didn't pay for that. But um, yeah, I started playing that year. Uh, Then we kind of started forming bands, you know, I mentioned that the music we learned, you know, in school kind of also helped establish these bonds, um, and um, uh, we started making, you know, creating bands. Uh, we had a band called the Horseman Junior High School Stage Band, of course, that's how it started, but uh, it, with, with players who ended up being, you know, very legendary, some of them in, in the industry. Uh, Bernard Rohn, Calvin Bernard Rohn is a very respected gospel musician, singer, songwriter, um, but, you know, we were just classmates and just doing our thing and, you know, kind of went from there. Um, 
and then you know, and then to high school. But high school, I played. I think what happened was we had a gig one time somewhere. The singer didn't show, um, and I was like, I can, I can, I can sub for him. I mean, if it's okay. And everybody was like, you don't sing. That's not what you do. You play saxophone. And I was like, well, yeah, but I can do it though if you give me a shot. And um, I think the first song was uh, Telephone Line. Bad oh yeah, EWB. Oh my lord! And all the girls that were like standing around, paying no attention, all of a sudden turned around and they were like, <gasps> and like ran to the stage. And I was like, yeah. And I kind of picked my saxophone and put it down. That was it. That's where you and I totally diverged because I can't sing at all, so I had the saxophone also. But, but for me in high school, you could I either could play football or stick with sax, and I went football. So, yep, there you go. And, yeah. and my buddies, that was their that was their that, um, same uh, choice was you know sports or music, and a lot of them chose sports because it was the way. So, so, yeah. so who who are some of your musical uh, heroes and favorites back then? Oh wow, um, Larry Graham. Um, I was big into Graham Central Station, and um, the you know because you know we're of a certain age. Uh, back in those days, when we go to the retail outlets, you know whether it be Tower or Warehouse or you know whatever it was, um, it was Tower for me. Tower was like heaven. Sunset Tower. The Sunset Tower. I mean, we had one in the South Bay, but it was about Sunset Tower. It was just, you know, because you never even knew who you might run into there. I mean, everybody, it was such an experience. But um, so uh, on my Grand, Grand Central Station albums, there was always uh, their manager's phone number. His, uh, Leslie, oh, God, I can't think of his last name now. Oh, can't think of it. But um, and his literally his phone number would be on the back of the record. I mean, like, no big deal. Who's gonna call, right? <laughs> Me. That's who I called because I was like, hey, listen. So I'm like a huge fan, and I just love Grand Central Station. And I know I'm only like you know 14. I don't know what this means, <laughs> but I would just love to meet Mr. Graham. And I just you know I love the band and you know and Herschel Herschel Happiness and Robert Sam and and Patrice Banks, and I just, you know, and they kept in touch with me. Every time they come to town, they would always let me know if they were going to be anywhere around. Um, they sent me posters and just all kinds of things, and would always just thank you so much for, you know, reaching out. And that experience now is kind of part of the, uh, the, the industry. Uh, especially in the DIY model, in the do-it-yourself model, it's really part of like what you have to do, the fan engagement piece. But back then, record companies handled all your PR and your marketing and your publicity and all that kind of stuff. And they didn't give a damn who you were. Uh, Mr. Ticket Buyer, just buy the ticket and buy the record and show up and go home. Um, but that piece about them just reaching out to me just meant the world. You talked about cool. and I, when I finally got a chance to meet Mr. Graham, and it was only 2011, 2012, when I finally actually met him, and I just told him that story, and he just cracked up. He thought it was the funniest thing because he was like, yeah, man, that's kind of why we did it. You know, we really wanted people to get a personal connection with us, you know, and I was like, wow. Well, mission accomplished because... I'm, I'm just a sold-out Larry Graham fan forever and ever. Um, but, I mean, yeah, so it was Larry Graham, uh, Graham Central Station, um, uh, average white man. Um, uh, she's those days. Um, lots of, lots of, 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 like, rock pop stuff. Uh, Steely Dan, um, Doobies. Um, I loved Eagles, um, you know, um, just everything, man. I, I I don't think there was ever a music. I I think when I was growing up, I said I didn't like country music because all my friends said they didn't like country music, and I didn't want to be the oddball. 
today I am the total oddball. I love country music, <laughs> and I don't mind telling anybody to listen. Did, did you tend to uh, focus in more on the singers or on the whole band or on certain instruments or, or the production? or? You know, I think because I was in bands um, and kind of a lot of times a de facto band leader, um, I really listened to everything. I got um, uh, really even listening to like a lot of jazz fusion stuff like Return to Forever, um, uh, Robin Ford uh, and the Yellow Jackets early stuff. Um, because all my friends were musicians, and so I listened to what they listened to, and I learned what they learned, and not necessarily um, because at this point I was singing more. Um, so I I just learned all the uh, all the songs and stuff just vocally. Um, Skunk Funk by Brecker Brothers. Um, just, you know, just because I had to listen to that stuff because my friends were listening to it. Um, and it made me a bit of an oddball because singers listen to singers. Um, and I didn't just listen to singers. I listened to a lot of musicians. Um, but you had to read music and had some of that training, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we had uh, harmony and theory and stuff in, in high school. Um, see, again, the lack of that, when I say that, it just infuriates me that we don't have those sorts of concentrations so available uh, to kids these days. Um, you know, uh, it's just a... Yeah, yeah. I was... Glad my son was able to uh, get banned. He they didn't have it in elementary school here like I had it when I went to school when we went in the seventies, um, you know. But middle school, he was able to take it up and I actually passed, handed down my alto to him. So, oh, nice, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, so at some point, uh, Kipper, you connected with Motown folks, and you know, how did that come to be? And talk about that a little bit. Pure serendipity. So, um, so at Gardena High School, um, I think I was in eleventh grade. So, yeah, a year before my senior year, um, there was a young lady uh, who I went to school with. Her name was Tamara Ellison, and um, I just, I, you know, we were just really good friends and just kind of kicked it a lot. Uh, whatever. But she kept telling me, "You got to meet my mom. You got to meet my mom." Uh, you know, my mom's a songwriter, and I'm like, oh, awesome, great. <laughs> but she's like, no, really, you got to meet my mom. And all, all this time, she's telling her mom, you got to meet this kid that I go to school with. And her mom's doing the same thing as me. She's like, Tammy, I don't have time for no kid, whatever. I just, yeah. Anyway, Tammy bugged her mother enough that she said, fine, have his mother call me, and we'll hook something up. And um, so they got in touch and went up to their house uh, in the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> and um, Tammy's mother is a woman named Marilyn McLeod. And Marilyn McLeod and another woman named Pam Sawyer were a Motown songwriting team. Um, I think their probably biggest hit together was um, If There's a Cure for This. I don't want it. Love Hangover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love Hangover for Dida Ross. Um, but they also wrote, like, Walk in the Night for Junior Walker. Um, uh, you Can't Turn Me Off for a group called High Energy, who I'm sure you remember. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so they were a pretty successful songwriting team. And um, I'm, I didn't really pay attention to that until I got to their house. I was like, oh, shit. She's like, really the business. Uh, and so I got to the house and uh, went in with my saxophone at the time, because, again, I was in 11th grade. And uh, her, um, she was just sitting there playing her roads. And 
smoking a cigarette. She didn't even look at me. <laughs> she was just like, uh, she goes, so so you gonna play that thing or what? And I was like, oh yeah yeah yeah. So I <clears throat> put my horn together and I played um. And then I sang, but I don't want to bore you with my troubles. Right? And she's still smoking her cigarette, not looking at me. <laughs> and um, so when I got done, she looked at my mom and she goes, so what's he doing tomorrow about 7.30? And my mom's like, so what do, you, what do you need him to do? So she writes down this address, and she goes, have him here tomorrow night, 7.30. And those days, Motown uh, owned uh, these beautiful, full-blown, just top-notch studios. Um, and they were called Sunrise and Sunset over in West Hollywood. And it was the address to the studios, and we went... And the next night was my first night as a Motown demo singer. Um, and that went on for, you know, a year or so, you know. But that was the, and I had a chance to sit under this machine and just soak it up and just, you know, just be a fly on the wall, basically. What was going through your head that first day? Um, it was too much. It was sensory overload. Um, we, we, my mother and my little sister and I, uh, showed up there and you had to go through security at the gate and everything. And as soon as we get through into the building, this, you know, those big doors at, at Westlake or, or, you know, Hit Factory, they these huge studio doors. This big door just swings open, this huge cloud of smoke just like billows out. And this larger-than-life figure just, like, bounds out of the room. He sees my little sister who had her finger in a splint. And he goes, oh, hey, little mama, uh, what happened to your hand? She's like, I, I broke it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, and he bends down and kisses her hand. And, you know, and it's just me, my mom, and my sister. And he goes, hey, y'all got a snicket? <laughs> we're like, I'm, 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 I'm all in. You know, my mother's like, no. Mm. You know, all this smoke and whatnot. And so he's like, yeah, come on in. I want you to hear something. And so we go in this studio, and uh, he goes, hey, yeah, so I'm just producing this on this little girl right here. I want y'all to listen. Um, hey, Tina, come here. Come here. Come here. And so she, he introduces her to us. It was Tina Marie. Wow. And this big, larger-than-life-ass figure is Rick James. And he plays, he goes, okay, play a song. And he plays uh, Sucker for Love. Which wow. was, yeah, they were just working on her record, right? And she's this little shy. She wasn't really, you know, real engaging or whatever. They're very sweet. And we ended up being the best of friends. And I worked with her, too, at a later date. But, um, yeah, so we heard Sucker for Love. And then I go and work for Marilyn and Pam and, and learn so much about songwriting and crafting and you know, and Mr. Gordy's method of it ain't really good enough until it's good enough. Um, you know, and I don't even care if that's good enough because I still want them to cut it and see what they end up doing with it kind of thing. I mean, just this real quality control genius um, kind of, you know, activity. And I, and I got a chance to really soak it up firsthand, man. It was just amazing. Uh, who gets to do that? Uh, it's 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 a it was a charm situation, and I will so forever be grateful to Tammy for hooking me up with her mom. Uh, Tammy has passed away since, but she, um, her son, uh, is a wildly successful uh, entity unto himself called Flying Lotus. Oh yeah, um, yes. Yeah. I know that name from working some with George Clinton. Mm, yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's, that's Tammy's son, <laughs> interestingly enough. And um, uh, and Marilyn McLeod uh, has a bit of a history as well. Her sister uh, is a woman named Alice Coltrane, um, who you also may know the name. And she was the wife and legendary uh, partner to John Coltrane. And, mm. uh, yeah, wow. so... What 
What what what was like your your as a demo singer? What was your what were your duties consist of mostly? Well, they would come up with these songs, um, you know, and uh, Pam Pam Sawyer, who I, I still talk to every now and then. She's a, a bit of a pistol. She's a, she's she's an English woman, and she would tell me, "No, it, it needs more soul, like more David Ruffin." I didn't, you know, and I'm like, girl, I'm 15. I don't know David I can't sing like that, you know. But she really um, was a large part of the reason that I think I ended up being such a soul singer um, and always sought out the soul in singers um, like David Ruffin or Bobby Womack, Dennis Edwards, Ollie Woodson, um, Felipe Wynn, my God. Whom I just probably my favorite, just go singer. Just when I say go singer, I mean just stand there and just go. <laughs> it was just amazing. Um, but yeah, Pam would kind of direct me through the song, um, and uh, I'm trying to remember one of the songs. There was this song called "The Most Important Person." You're the most important person in your life. It was the corniest shit I ever heard. Um, but was, um, I think Johnny Mathis ended up recording it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, I mean, my duties were to just present the song in a way that they could shop the song to, you know, an artist or get it placed somewhere. Um, and so it wasn't to come in and sing the paint off the walls. Don't come in here doing all that. We just need a voice to kind of do what we need done, you know, and, and I also learned the difference in doing a demo and doing, and then doing a full-blown production um, because a lot of singers, uh, when they hear a song, if it's an outside song or something, they don't want the singer doing all these pyrotechnics and stuff and they'll be intimidated like, oh, I can't do that. Um, you know, a body rate, for instance, doesn't even take songs from uh, writers, if a female demoed the song, she only wants songs from a, a male voice because she doesn't even want to compare herself to some other woman kind of thing. I'm not getting into that. Hmm. So, just, you know, if it's a guy, she'll listen to it. You know. Interesting. So, so how many songs might you do in like a week? Um, probably two. Maybe just a couple of songs, like one and a half each visit, and then I would work with them like, you know, a couple of nights a week, you know. Because uh, mind you, again, I'm still in the eleventh grade. I got homework. I got, you know, stuff. Um, you know, school stuff. I was still in marching band. I was still in orchestra. I was, you know, I still had my scholastic duties. Um, but I tell you, just a, a little aside. One of the greatest things that happened during that time was um, one night my mom drove me because she would just drop me off and leave and then come back and get me like two three hours later or whatever. Um, and one night she dropped me off and when I got there um, there was like no buzz. And I mean it was almost like the lights were out. I'm like what's going on? And um, when I walked in the studio um, this uh, Pam was like in tears, and I'm like, "What's what's wrong?" Well, they had been working on this piece, on this song called "Pops, We Love You," for um, Mr. Gordy's dad, because um, it was going to be his 90th birthday, and they were going to do this big old record release, shebang bang, right? Uh, with uh, the song was going to feature Diana Ross and Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, no, uh, yeah, uh, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. And, uh, you know, because those are like his kids, basically, right? Um, he passed away, I want to say that this was like the day or two before his birthday. Hmm. Before his birthday. And you know, everyone was really sad. They were really, really down about it. And so Marilyn goes, hey, um, can your mom just come back and get you? Because we're not going to work tonight. Um, 
you know, we got to get this record done because now we got to put it out for, you know, his service, basically. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, well, she left. I mean, you know, there's no cell phones. <laughs> so um, I had to stay while Diana Ross and Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Jermaine Jackson and all these other, like, I, I died and went to soul music. Like a, like a Motown, we are the world. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they all came that night to do their piece for this tribute record. And I'm just sitting in the corner like, oh, oh wow, wow, wow. Yeah. I, I was um, just I was just gonna ask you about meeting some of those people and you just mentioned them all, but I was also gonna mention like the, I, I was thinking of everyone that was on Motown then, like the Commodores and um, you know, uh, the Jacksons and um, uh, or Jermaine at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean I that night was just that was that didn't make sense. <laughs> it just did not make sense. Uh -huh. And and Miss Ross is just She's a mother, so she saw me, and she's like, you know what? What's going on with him? And where's his mother? And so Marilyn explained to him, to her that you know he's, he's just a demo singer, and his mom dropped him off, and then she also, she just comes over, and she's oh baby, and you know she's just a mother, you know, and it was it was I'm about to cry again, but it was just amazing, um, just that time, and you know I. I'm a big believer in, in predestination and, and God really kind of puts you where you're supposed to be to get what you have to get to go where he's taking you. And, and, and it was just an amazing uh, journey uh, that started off with this great big bang. I mean, it's just like, you can't get any bigger than this, right? Yeah. You know? And it stays in that, in that wave. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, there have been some great low moments. I mean, and by great, I mean just really, really low. But, I mean, by and large, man, it's just stayed in that wave. And it's just a certain vibration, I guess, that, that I just was following, you know. What what year was that, Kipper? That would have been, what was you, 78-ish? 70, 70, somewhere between 77 through 79. Um, yeah. And that that uh, Motown that was that Crossroads of the World building. Uh, near not far from that, Guitar Center. That's where the offices were. Yeah. Uh, but the studio was in West Hollywood, um, off of Santa Monica Boulevard, and I want to say La Palma, uh, by the Goward Gulch. Behind the Gower Gulch, so Santa Monica and Gower behind there. So I worked for a while, pretty close to the Motown offices over at uh, Black Radio Exclusive. You worked at Black Radio Exclusive? Yeah, late in the late eighties. So do you know Lance Whitfield? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, dear dear friend of mine. Um, okay. We were in rival bands growing up. He went to a uh, Lock High School. We went to Gardena. And they had a band called Oase, and we had a band called Tease, <laughs> and we were in a uh, Battle of the Bands concert uh, contest in 1981, and we were the finalists. The two what, of us. Was that through K Day or what station? K Ace, K Ace, 3.9. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, and you know that stuff is on film. There were video cam, you know, film cameras out there. Recording that stuff, I would love to see that footage. If anybody, yeah, so would I. <laughs> or knows that has to be some amazing stuff. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, even I was going back and looking for any you know older tease footage period, and I don't see anything on YouTube. You know, there's just a couple of like that one thing that you guys did uh, a little later on, but not in the very beginning. Yeah, so I have. Um, some footage uh, that I've been able to acquire um, over the years. I have uh, um, the, the six-man iteration, the first band. Uh, we played at the Playboy Club in Century City. You remember that, George? I was a member, yes. <laughs> awesome. 
<laughs> awesome. Okay, so yeah, so we, we played there, and this was 1983, and I do have that entire performance on video. Wow, that would be something to see. Um, but let's let's wind it back for the audience a little bit. So how did uh, Tease get formed? I mean, you won this battle of the bands, but how did you get that together? And I know there were some precursor bands to that that became Tease. Mm -hmm, sure. There was... Um, so Cornelius Mims, uh, Rex Salas, and, and myself were in a band at that point called Seventh Heaven. Um, and Seventh Heaven was an iteration of what was going on at the time. Uh, those bands had frontline singers, horn section, rhythm section. Um, so it was like 11 people, right? You know, I mean, all those bands, Rolls Royce, Brass Construction, um, you know, you name them. I mean, that, you know, and that's why a band like, I mean, even LTD, but a band like Commodores was like, they were making out. There was only six of them. <laughs> they were lean and mean for those times. Yeah, they were lean and mean, <laughs> baby. So, um, but yeah, so we, uh, in Seventh Heaven, we kind of, what happened was is we heard about the KAC concert in the park. We knew about it, and we said we wanted to do it, but we didn't want to do it with the whole band. That's just too much. It's just, you know, so <laughs> under the cover of darkness, we uh, <laughs> we just kind of abdicated and just said, "Listen, it's this, it's the six of us, and you know." So, which was the rhythm section and me. <laughs> no more horns, no girls, no none of that. And we just went lean, mean, funk and roll, and just went for it. So from Seventh Heaven, and Seventh Heaven with an A, not H-E-A-V-E-N, but B-A-N, because our drummer at the time um, had a van <laughs> called Seventh Heaven, H-E-A-V-A-N, and we named ourselves after his van. So anyway, that was, that's what made us different. Um, so uh, out of that van, Joseph Parson, uh, Cornelius, Rex, and myself, um, uh, we like I said, we just kind of just left. And then there was another band at another rival high school called Morningside High School. And there was a band called Fifth Avenue, um, which was uh, Darren Durst, Joe Foxworth, and the Oregon Brothers, Tommy and Derek Oregon, uh, drums and guitar. And they are just virtuosic. I mean, just ridiculous. It's like, how old are they? <laughs> They're not high school kids. They can't play. They're crazy. But they had just graduated from high school as well. And, you know, so we made them a proposal. We were like, dude, how about you two get with us? And we just become like a super group. And they went for it, and we went for it. And that was, that became Tease. That was, that was it. As a matter of fact, when we went to enter into the contest, um, we didn't have a name. We uh, because they, we were Seventh Heaven, they were Fifth Avenue. We didn't have a name. Um, I don't know if you know a young lady named Madeira Shakur. She sings with Jimmy Buffett. Um, she's been with Buffett for 20 years, um, but she also does a house music thing. She's a brilliant artist on her own. But anyway, her brother is a dear friend of ours. He was hanging with us that day, and he goes, "Hey man, how about keys? I don't know. I just like that." We were like. Fine, we'll go with it. I mean, it was it was no thought. It was just like great, and uh, we became T's. That was our day one, and we've been kicking ass and taking names ever since. What did you perform for the contest? It was funny because we had a, a couple of original things that um, Seventh Heaven was doing, um, and uh, we we played them, but. Rick James Super Freak was hot at that time. And another band, oh, as a matter of fact, I think it was Oase. <laughs> I think they played it before us. And I specifically remember saying, another band just played this song, but we don't give a damn. And we played it and killed. And um, I, just, I just remember that moment specifically. That's why it's funny when you, you asked me what we played out of. I don't know what else we did, but I know that day we did that song and just 
freaking murdered the stadium. It was crazy. It was, and what was the venue? It was the, they did them at parks uh, at the, at city parks, and I think this one was at Darby Park in in Inglewood, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Yeah, it was either Darby Park or Compton College, one of those two. But I mean, you know, they just did them at, at outdoor parks and venues like that. You know? How how much rehearsal did you guys get as a combined unit before you were able to take that on? Oh, we 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 got we got it in. You know, we 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 would and, and our rehearsals were ridiculous and, and bothering neighbors and everything. <laughs> so we we didn't have money for XIR and that kind of shit. We had to play we had to play where we could, you know what I mean? So Well in stripping down like that, Kipper, you guys I think I mean, because obviously in what Tease became, it was pretty clear to me you guys at least had some influence by groups like the time. So and that was a group that, you know, was stripped down and didn't have the horns and so forth. So was that a little bit of a template for you guys, do you think? Um, every, every group with that kind of format um, and not just in that genre. So groups like Fishbone, um, uh, Bus Boys, I mean, any rock and roll, whether it was rock and roll or funk or whatever it was. Um, and so musically, we did all of that. I don't, I mean, you know, if you remember the first T's album, it had a lot of funk stuff. It had some new wave kind of Scott kind of shit. Oh, I mean, it was crazy. We were all over the map. We were doing the big Gino Vanelli ballad. We would just do whatever musically we felt like we wanted to do. You know, and I think that's another reason why RCA was like, okay, who are they? I have no idea. And I think the labels had a problem with us through the history of T's, not knowing what to do with us because musically we wanted to do whatever we wanted to do. We just wanted to do music. It didn't it didn't really I mean, yeah we were the funkiest band on the block. Yeah we were kinda of gonna stomp a mud hole in your ass if you came on before us. It was just God bless you <laughs> because our show was killer. Um but musically, I mean we just wanted to do whatever we wanted to do. Um, winning the contest, though, how did you get connected with Ollie Brown, and, and how did that record come together for you guys? Yeah, Ollie was one of the judges at the finals, um, and he just said, you know, I, I, I'm going to produce y'all. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. You know. Did you know who he was at that point? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, fucking Ollie Brown, man. He plays with the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder and yeah. Man. Radio. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And not to mention, he's like best friends with Ray Parker. So we ended up, of course, recording our first record at American, at Ray's place. So, you know, Ray's like, I still call him Uncle Ray. <laughs> he's like my big bro, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, Ollie was like, not just the producer, but Ali was really a coach. Um, he coached us into this business. Um, I will always be grateful. Um, he taught me things like, um, remember, what did he say? Always remember people's names because, uh, like, like even if you go to the radio station and when you go to the visit, Remember the receptionist's name. Remember the security guy's name. Because those are the people that are going to tell the program director, hey, play that guy's record because he, he remembered me. Or he's, you know, I like him, play that record. Remember people's name. And that's always stuck with me. And it's always been a thing um, about remembering people's names. I just, that's important. And, and I see the value in it, you know. Um, but you know, just little stuff like that. Uh, but his his coaching um, was was just it, it was just great for me in my career. But anyway, he he saw us there, um, signed us to his production company, and then shopped us to everybody in town. When I tell you, we showcased for Larkin Arnold. We showcased for Stevie personally. We showcased for Clive Davis. We showcased for, um, who was that? Was it? No, that wasn't no, Neil Bogart. It was someone else. But, I mean, Ali 
put together these brilliant showcase performances. Um, I danced on Soul Train for two years. You may not know that. It's a little hidden fact. <laughs> um, what years was that? Did you do that? That was in 80 through 82. So, so that same um, period. Same period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because the band, we weren't really, you know, really doing, doing anything. And I'm like, you know, I'm all, I always wanted to be on Soul Train anyway. That was like my thing. So, um, so yeah. But so for our performances, uh, when we did the, the showcases, we got... Um, Anybody who knows Soul Train knows the Asian girl with the hair. You know Cheryl's song, right, Cheryl? Mm -hmm. So we got Cheryl to come and do this intro piece with me. And she comes in and dances and, you know, does her thing. And then, then the band takes off, right? So, um, but we had this really cool show. And uh, finally, RCA bit. And we did our first record at RCA. And we released in 1983. And Flash was out before the album, right? Uh, Flash was the first single from the album. But oh, the album yeah. came out same time, and then I don't know. I think it may have predated it by you know, weeks or so, but I don't think it was any great length of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and who wrote Flash? Okay, so <laughs> we all did um, the six of us. Um, and that's kind of how it was going. I, I just did lyric and melody, and we all kind of chimed in on how, on the rest of it, you know, um, on how, how the rest of it went. Um, and even if there were, like, Rex, uh, Rex Salas, Rex was, you know, playing keyboards at the time, and, you know, Rex has gone on to be an incredible uh, music director and, and songwriter in his own right, but... He and I grew up in Carson, California, south of L.A. Um, we were writing songs together anyway. We entered even a couple of songwriting competitions, just the, the two of us. Um, the city of Carson sponsored a songwriting competition, and we won. We submitted two songs, and we won first and second place. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we were really, you know, kind of the main writers but Ali was convinced that the way to keep the peace in the room is to give everybody equal credit. Um, something I learned is not necessarily the best thing to do. But, you know, you learn, right? You, you get in and you learn. Um, so the songs you'll see listed, like on the album, I think they're all listed, like as the six of us wrote them or so. What, what, was, what was Ali like in the studio itself as a producer? Um, he is a real producer because he's a real musician. Um, I tend to think that these days kids call themselves producers when they're just like what we call beat makers or track guys. You don't know how to actually play anything and you can't produce a singer through a record, you know what I mean? Because you, you don't know emotion, you don't know singing, you don't know, you know, the wherewithal, what it takes to, to actually make a record. Ali is a real producer. And so Ali was able to teach us and Ali worked with real producers like Quincy Jones, who he introduced us to. Um, and uh, so working with him was, was wonderful. And then working at Ray's place and Ray would peek his head in every now and then, you know, um, it was, it was great. You know, um, I learned quite a bit uh, from, from Ali in terms of uh, how to run a session, how to, you know, just, you know, studio etiquette, just all kinds of things like that. You know. mm -hmm. Consummate pro. Consummate pro. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, they just kind of put the record out, and that, and that was kind of it, you know. And, I mean, you know, I wasn't um, mad about it. We recorded a record and it didn't get shelved. It actually, it actually right. came out. You know what I mean? But I, I mean, I thought, I thought Flash was going to be a sizable hit. I mean, you know, I thought it had all the ingredients, and it just, you know, I, I was really surprised that it didn't take off at that time. Yeah. I, I think that at, at another label, maybe. 
who had a better fix on what it was supposed to do, uh, I think it may have had a chance. Um, but, you know, to Frank's point, <laughs> uh, maybe they just didn't know what they were doing or something to that effect. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, being in L.A., I heard it on the radio. I don't know if it got outside of our market much, but... Exactly. Yeah, for, thank God for K-Ace and KJLH. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't mention them, but another uh, a couple other bands that came to mind on that first record to me was a little bit of what Slave was doing at the time, you know, especially like in the bass sound. Absolutely. And... and um, Put the brakes on, baby. Uh, gave me kind of a barcase, like traffic jammer kind of, you know, <laughs> right, vibe. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, because those were the those were the sounds that were in the air at that point, right? So um, I think we um, we kind of have a creative expression that is influenced by the sounds that are in the air at that time, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, well. And those were in the air. <laughs> and those were, you know, if you're going to pick something out of the air, those are some good things to, to pick, you know. <laughs> cool. yeah. uh, from where I sit, anyway. Um, so that fizzled a little bit, and you guys uh, uh, ended up changing labels. Uh, what transpired to, to get you over to Epic? Um, so... We came to a very amicable parting of the ways um, with RCA. That wasn't a problem because I think they knew they fumbled too. Um, but leaving Ali was not the easiest thing because um, I don't think everybody wanted to do that. Um, some people more than others and that's kind of what happened to bring us from six people to four people. Um, uh, you know, everybody didn't want to make the split. Some people just were just done. They <laughs> were just done. Um, you know, everybody's not cut out for this business. Just because you have the talent doesn't mean you have the fortitude for this business. This business, um, especially in those days, um, if you know, it's different now uh, because you can do the DIY model um, and build your empire as large or small as you want it. Um, if you're willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. um, but in those days, it wasn't about you being willing to do the work. You sign the contract, you're going to do the work. But it's just that simple. Um, you know, it's not a lot of wiggle room. Um, but we decided that we wanted to, uh, myself, the Oregon Brothers, um, Chucky Booker, who was always in the, how do we say this, always in the band but never in the group. <laughs> he was So you'll never see him on an album cover, but he's on every record. Um, how, how did you connect with him initially? Um, Chucky's again is from another rival high school, um, and but Chucky was uh, a year or so younger than me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, Chucky's my my brother. I, you know, we absolutely love each other. And when Chucky was coming up, his mother was because he's an only child. His mother, not overbearing, but very, very hands-on, very strict. If we, if we had a gig and we wanted Chucky to play, I personally, Kippy, if Kippy don't come by and speak to speak to Miss Dean and tell her where Chucky's going, then Chucky can't go. And so, you know, I would go, well, if Kippy's going, then yes, and you have to go with him. And he has to come back at this time. And you know, it was very, very, she was very protective. Of him. Sounds like my mom. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. My, my mother was, I, I have much more leeway. Uh, but, um, yeah, so so Chucky went to San Pedro High, which was also in the South Bay Bias, and um, and played in another band called Something Special, 
with uh, some friends of ours, the Thomas brothers, Terrence and uh, Lewis Thomas. Um, Barry White and Chucky's mom grew up with Barry White and that family and so Barry is Chucky's godfather. Uh, Mr. White was, was uh, Chucky's godfather and um, so Chucky had a lot of uh, musical knowledge from him but Chucky is, I don't know how well you know him because he is, he's an amazing, amazing human being who is just gifted beyond your wildest imagination. And when I say gifted, he can play any instrument, any instrument, and he's a freehand artist with his left hand itself. Um, and he's just, he's just, and he's just the sweetest person ever. And, you know, he's, he's just, he's just an awesome guy. So, like I said, was always on the periphery. Um, and so he came uh, with us on the epic uh, ride, and um, and we had uh, that. What happened with that was we were just showcasing. We knew now how to get a record deal, so we set up our own showcases. We, um, I set up our own showcases, and I would secure a venue and. You know, I even, you know, did some funding or whatever, and, you know, we shopped around. And then uh, Stephen Shockley from Lakeside um, saw us and said, hey, man, I want to produce y'all, and I can get you a deal right away. And so we took the meeting, and Larkin Arnold, who was aware of us because we showcased for him the first time, before RCA signed us to Epic. And that process was really different because, uh, well, Cornelius Mims actually had left as well, and we got Jay Shanklin on bass. Um, Cornelius went off to do his thing. He was playing with George Howard and some other people. But um, so, whereas Ali was very... Uh, hands-on, uh, the consummate producer person, Steve Shockley was the total opposite. Steven was like, shit, y'all don't need me, so I'm just chilling in here. <laughs> so it's like, what part of the game is this? Wait a minute, why, why, then why do we need you? Why are you here? But, you know, he got us the deal, and not only did he get us the deal, he was... Uh, um, uh, the influence welfare. He wrote Firestarter, which was the first single from from the album, and um, very instrumental in um, securing the song called Soft Music, which was one of the first songs written by uh, Babyface that he uh, that the deal didn't do, or you know, and that he didn't produce. We produced it, and um, but it was. Uh, it was just a very, very different sort of thing. We were still able to bring in our material as we wanted and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but the songs that Stevie brought to the table were amazing. Um, you know, Firestarter was a number 11 record on Billboard, and, you know, and soft music is still, you know, just people still talk about that song. I remember that Babyface song y'all did. You know, it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just a different experience that first album with the and that came out in 86, so that was towards, for Shockey, uh, that was towards the end of Solar Records was starting to kind of... Yes. You know, yeah. otherwise I was thinking maybe he would have tried to get you a deal there, but they were sort of getting on the outs there, I imagine. We took a meeting with Mr. Griffey, um, and uh, we just didn't think it was a fit for us. I mean, they had a lot of what we were anyway. I mean, you know, they, they had Lakeside, they had Dynasty, they had... Um, uh, real to real at that time, didn't they? No, real to real was at Arista. Midnight Star, um, yeah, yeah, Midnight Star, yeah. You know, it was it was kind of too much of that same thing over there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to your point, Stevie didn't really want to be over there. I don't think he didn't he didn't want us to be at Solar. You know, so the the Larkin Arnold CBS epic thing made sense, you know, at that time. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. 
just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.